This morning we're going to come to Luke chapter 22, verse 66. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I don't know if you've ever been falsely accused or not before, but it's not very fun. It's not very fun to have people say things about you that aren't true, to maybe uh, pass some vicious rumors around. And, uh, you know, you, your character, your name is on the line, and these people are doing it, and they're doing it to be mean, and they know they're doing it. Uh, maybe you've had to go to court, and somebody is suing you. They know they're, they're in the wrong, and you know they're in the wrong, but they've hired lawyers to testify and try to convince the judge or the jury that they're in the right. They're trying to scam you. They're trying to take something from you. They're trying to keep from paying what is owed you. And it just is really a terrible situation to be in as you have to sit there and bear up under the the lying and the deceiving and the greed. And there's a part of you that just wants to just, you know, forget it all and walk away. But then there's another part of you that says, I can't let them get away with it. And it's just, uh, it's a miserable situation. They're hard to endure, things like these. And history is full of instances of wicked men who, uh, in positions of power, uh, went up against innocent people and convicted them for their own selfish reasons, perverting justice and really um, passing unjust sentences upon the innocent. Nero, after burning Rome to the ground, thought, "Uh uh-oh, that wasn't probably a very good idea, and I'm going to blame it on the Christians. And so then the Christians became hunted down like animals, tortured and killed and burned at the stake, uh, just because Nero wanted to lie about it and wanted to save face. The Roman Catholic Church, uh, during the English Reformation, burnt many Protestant uh, at the stake because they denied that during communion, after the priest said the words of consecration, that the bread and the wine turned into the literal body and blood of Christ. Because people said, no, it's still bread and it's still why uh, they burnt them at the stake. The Nazis in World War II falsely accused and condemned millions of Jews. Why? Because they were Jews, supposedly an inferior race. And so history continues like this. Even today in communist countries and Islamic countries, Christians are persecuted and killed for being Christians. But the greatest kangaroo court in the history of the world, of course, was the trial of Jesus Christ. And many books have been devoted to it. If you just, you know, get on Google or whatever and type in, you know, books about the trial of Jesus, uh, you'll find that many people have written about it. It is so fascinating because it is such a huge mockery of justice. It's just hard to imagine that uh, so many things could go against Jesus. It was uh, as if all the planets just happened to align one day on him. And it's just uh, a really an interesting case study to look at. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at uh, the beginning stages of Jesus's trial. It's Friday morning. Jesus was arrested uh, the night before by a mob composed of Jewish leaders, Roman soldiers, uh, the slave of the high priest, and, uh, and Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, was leading them. Judas, of course, at that time was possessed by Satan. And Jesus has been beaten and mocked and slapped around and spit upon all night long. 
He has gone before Annas uh, and Caiaphas, the high priests. You just need to know a little bit about these two men. Uh, Annas was made high priest and he served from 6 AD to 15 AD. But because uh, he was not very kind to the Romans and the Romans got whiff of this, they disposed him and said, you need to get yourself another high priest. And so his son-in-law, Caiaphas, became the uh, the Roman-sanctioned high priest from 18 to 36 AD. Yet some Jews still felt that Annas was the true high priest, though Caiaphas was the officially sanctioned Roman accepted high priest. And so both of them kind of served together uh, at this time. Jesus has been brought before them. John in John chapter 18 verses 13 and again in verse 24 tell us that uh, when Jesus was arrested, he was first taken to Annas and then tried before Annas. Later he was taken to Caiaphas. And that means that before daylight, Jesus has already been tried twice. However, since uh, the Jews had made a rule that you can't try anybody at night, um, therefore those trials were not binding. So as we come to our text this morning, Jesus is entering into his third but first official trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, of course, is a collection of 70 men. These are the most powerful, most prominent, most well-educated and respected Jews in all of Jerusalem. These men are, you know, most of them big beards, Jewish garb, uh, a lot of them experts, scripture people, lawyers. Um, they really know their stuff and the people highly respect them. They look respectable. They are old and they're dressed in official garb. And we are going to see him first tried before the Sanhedrin, uh, the priests, uh, Pharisees, uh, Jewish dignitaries, scribes, and elders. Uh, And then we are going to see him taken before two civil trials, before Pilate and Herod. So by the time this morning is over, uh, we will have looked at the first five stages of Jesus's trial, which is uh, pretty amazing in and of itself. Because the text is long, I'm not going to read it. We'll just look at as we go. But from our text, I want you to see four ways Jesus suffered for you during his trial. And hopefully this will just make you love him for the sacrifice he made on your behalf, for the things that he suffered for you and motivate you to live for his glory. The first thing is Jesus was interrogated by the Sanhedrin for you. And we see this beginning in Luke chapter 22, verse 66. If you look there, it says when it was day. That is when it was daybreak. It's early in the morning. So whenever the sun rose that day, they were right on it. They were ready. Uh, They had sent messengers out. And we know this must have happened because the whole Jewish council is assembled and ready at daybreak to get rid of Jesus and uh, condemn him. Look at verse 66. The council of elders of the people assembled both the chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. Um, Luke, and we don't know why, severely condenses the trial portion of Jesus. We don't know why John gives us the most. The other gospels give us a little bit more than Luke. But picture in your mind a large room, 70 men with grim faces, white beards, beady eyes, angry, provoked, hostile to Jesus. 
And Jesus is there in this secret chamber. Um, it, it was their council room, and only they were allowed to go in there. Remember, they're trying to keep Jesus' trial from the public eye because they know that during the week previous, he had gained a lot of public sympathy. I mean, there was the triumphal entry. Everybody was saying, Hosanna in the highest. And after that, Jesus taught in the temple. And a lot of the people, when they heard him teach in the temple, really liked what he had to say. So because there are, remember, three million Jews now in Jerusalem, because it's the most um, attended pilgrim feast, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jerusalem is packed. And the Jews want to make sure that Jesus is tried and condemned without the public having an outrage against them. And so they are now whisking him away. They betrayed him in the garden at night. They beat him up in private. Now they're trying him in private. And Mark 15.1 tells us the whole council was there. So all 70 of them were there. Jesus is now alone with his enemies. And he has regularly exposed them as hypocrites, greedy, power-hungry man-pleasers who put their traditions before the word of God. This, of course, he has done in public. And because of that, it has lessened the esteem of these men in the eyes of the Jewish population. And that has made them angry. Uh, More still, Jesus has exposed their greed that they devour widows' houses. And because of that, now they're really hot because now they really touch the sore. And that is their desire for wealth. And Jesus has exposed them for really their business, which they cloak in religiosity. So he's in their chamber. He's out of the public eye. And they're trying to keep all of this a secret. And and Matthew and Mark tell us they bring forth two false witnesses. Uh, one of the false witnesses leveled against Jesus, the accusation that he would destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. Um, if you wanted to make any Jew mad, all you'd have to say is this person wants to destroy the temple. They were fiercely protective of the temple. They loved the temple. They They cherished the temple it was their it was brand new it was brilliant it was gorgeous and they loved it to death and anybody who is thought of as knocking it down would instantly be pictured in their mind as a terrorist and so that's why this accusation is brought against jesus um Jesus, of course, the whole time is just remaining silent. He's letting them have their way with him. He is, as is Isaiah 53, 7 says, as a sheep that is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. And so this, of course, has exasperated because now the whole council's there. They're accusing, 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 and Jesus won't say a single word. Caiaphas, who is leading the Sanhedrin now, is exasperated. And according to Matthew 26, verse 63, he stands up and then he says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Mark says Caiaphas also added, are you Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Luke merely records that he said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, since they adjured Jesus by the living God, Jesus is now officially under oath, and so he has to speak, because there was a little law, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1, that said when somebody was in this situation, they couldn't remain silent. But why do you think that it was important for the Jews to get Jesus to admit that he was the Christ? Think about that. 
It's not because Pilate would care about it. I mean, Pilate doesn't care who the Jewish Messiah is. No, the reason was that other Jewish so-called messiahs had risen up previously before this time and started revolts against Rome. So what they're doing is they're trying to find accusation against Jesus, knowing they can't kill him, but Rome has to kill him. And so they're looking for information they can use that will provoke Rome to execute him. And one of those things is that Jesus is really an insurrectionist in the bud. He is a messiah, another one. And he's going to lead the people in revolt against Rome. And so you better deal with him. Also notice that the Sanhedrin here, who is supposed to function as kind of a high court, listening to cases uh, and then giving a verdict, is now acting as both prosecutor and accuser. They're not functioning like they're supposed to do, supposed to function. They're trying to extract information from Jesus to accuse him with. As we have pointed out many times before, they knew the answer to the question. I mean, they had John the Baptist and the, the miraculous things surrounding John the Baptist's birth and, and Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and the angels and the testimony of the shepherds and the magi and the prophets and the three-year ministry of Jesus with all the miracles and the teaching and the triumphal entry earlier in the week and Jesus flatly claiming on the temple mount that week, I am the Messiah. So they've got plenty of information. They know what the truth is, but they want to hear it from Jesus in this official court. Now, you you might be thinking to yourself, well, why didn't they believe? You know, why didn't they? I mean, didn't they want the Messiah to come? Weren't they looking for the Messiah? Weren't they excited about the Messiah? Why are all these Jewish leaders against Jesus if they've had so much information and revelation about the Messiah? The answer is... Pretty simple. When they looked at all the texts on the Messiah, they only saw those texts as meeting their specific desires, such as the Messiah will come, he will, you know, defeat the nations, and he will rule and reign from Zion. Because of that, they want, they're looking for a Messiah who is a divinely sent military leader who's going to beat up Rome, exalt Jerusalem, and put them in power. Now, when Jesus comes along, he exposes their man-made traditions that are supplanting the word of God. He exposes their religious hypocrisy, their desire for money and greed and power. He exposes them and so they, they just can't bring themselves to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only that, they, they just can't bring themselves to believe that, that God would send um, somebody to die for their sins. That, that was not in their scope of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They just couldn't get that part. You know, the Messiah... Coming a first time to die in humility? That, that was not on their radar. So when they see Jesus and they see him claiming to be a Messiah, they're thinking, where's his army? You know, where's his, 
conquering of Rome. He's not doing what we expect and therefore he can't be the one. But Jesus was doing what God expected, not what the religious leaders expected. So they confused his first coming with their second coming, not really understanding the whole first coming and its purpose. And that's why Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 and 16, the, a lot of the Jews is having a veil over their eyes because they can't see it. They just can't see the first and second coming, the Messiah coming, dying in humility, then coming back in glory to set up his kingdom on earth. They can't grasp that. And so he says the veil remains on their heart and over their eyes until they repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ, and then the veil's removed. Of course, the disciples were all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. We know that after Pentecost and the church was established, the whole church was founded upon believing Jews. We know that probably within this council right now, the very council that's trying Jesus, not all of them want to see Jesus done away with. We know that Nicodemus, according to John 3, was a ruler of the Jews, a leader of the Pharisees. And so he's probably in this council watching all of this transpire. And he believes Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, he told him that, John 3. That he says, we, speaking for the Pharisees, know that you are from God because nobody could do the things that you do unless God be with them. So Nicodemus, in order to kind of maintain his political position, is among this group, but the bulk of them want to see Jesus done away with. But as history shows, not only were the Jews susceptible to wandering away from the truth, but so is the church. Oftentimes, as the church progresses, as either individual churches or denominations or Christian organizations progress, they often go from conservative to liberal. You can look at things such as Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Those are schools which began because... They were seminaries to train preachers to preach the gospel. Now they have just first went liberal and then just went totally secular. You can look at the Church of England today. I mean, enough to make a lot of those great pastors in the Church of England roll over in their grave. The Presbyterian Church, which would make the founders of Presbyterianism throw up because of the stuff that they put up with the sin, the immorality, the degradation of the word of God, the United Methodists. And of course, many individual local churches the same way. They have just wandered away from the truth, gone away from the word of God. They've built up their traditions and somebody comes in and that person gets into power. And, and what happens is, is when they're looking for the next person, they ask questions and that person says everything that's right. But in their heart, they don't believe a couple things, but they want the job. And so they kind of lie a little bit. And then what happens is they get into a place of power and they begin to make shifts of one degree and they're hardly noticeable. And though a few of the conservative people think, you know, that kind of eeks me, but I'm going to put up with it because it's just one degree. Then there's another degree and another degree. And soon the whole organization, church, denomination is heading away from the Lord and his word rather than going with it. 
And this is what has happened by the time that Jesus shows up before this council. The Jewish people have, for the most part, wandered away from the truth. They think that salvation is by works, that they get to be saved just because they're Jews and are children of Abraham, and that these religious leaders who are really hypocrites who hate God and hate God's word just because they know a lot about God, they think those are the people to follow, and they're not. And now they're persecuting their own Messiah. I mean, Stephen brought this up, right, in Acts 7. You remember what he said? As he's preaching to the Jews right before they kill him, he says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed. They killed them. The Jews could read in their own book. They know their own history. They know that whenever they went into sin, God would send prophets and they would persecute and or kill them. They knew it. What could they say? Uh Uh-uh. It's in their book. And so instead of owning up to it, then they killed Stephen. And now Jesus, their own Messiah, is before them, and many want to put him to death. Look at the middle of verse 67. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you a question, you will not answer. Jesus' version here of pleading the fifth, refusing to incriminate himself, he says, listen, If I tell you you're not going to believe, I mean, you know, you guys aren't here to weigh the truth and to determine what's right and wrong. You're here to condemn me. It's like earlier in the week. You know, remember when I asked you about the ministry of John? Was it from heaven or from men? Remember, you you wouldn't even answer me. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. But then he knows he's under oath because he's been adjured by the living God. And so then he gives him an answer. And his answer is composed of allusions to two messianic texts in the Old Testament, which all these Jews, being experts in the law, are all now going to soak in. They're going to think of the context of these passages, and it's going to strike them. Look at verse 69. He says, but from now on, the son of but but from now on the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of god and mark and matthew add that jesus also said coming with the clouds of heaven they all knew what this meant this whole seated at the right hand of god thing came from psalm 110 verse 1 which of course we learned jesus had a little discussion with them on the temple mount earlier in the week and forced them to the conclusion that the messiah had to be god incarnate and that psalm says the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your seat your feet right now jesus's enemies are around them and he's saying listen I'm going to sit down as God incarnate at the right hand of God. And the Lord is going to deal with you. Then the other allusion, he, the other text he alludes to is Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Where Daniel in a vision writes, I kept looking in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So in saying what he did, Jesus has now brought before their minds these scary thoughts. 
He is God incarnate. He is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He will sit uh, next to the Ancient of Days. He will rule the entire world as the Messiah and Son of David. And he is their judge. That's all. So they get this as... Because they know. And we know they know what he's saying. Because if you look at verse 70, they all ask, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. This is the clearest, most definitive affirmation from the mouth of Jesus that he is God in the New Testament. Jesus is not a son of God like the holy angels who are sons of God or like believers who are adopted sons and daughters of God. He is the son of God, the divine son of man, the one who sits at the right hand of God, the one who rules all the nations. When the angel Gabriel announced Jesus' identity in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, he said the baby Jesus would be the son of the most high. At Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, in Luke chapter 4, verse 3, and also in verse 9, Satan twice said, If you are the son of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, in Luke chapter 9, verse 35, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my son. The Sanhedrin were fulfilling Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, which says, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed. Psalm 2 goes on to affirm the Messiah is the very begotten Son of God who will then judge his enemies. So Jesus plainly, clearly, without parable, without asking another question, states that he is the Son of God. This is a piece, of course, in the messianic puzzle that they just can't fathom. God is one. There can't be God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. That cannot be God. He's one. And so God could never have a son. And so Jesus can't be God. He can't do it. It can't work. It won't work. If you get on the internet and you look, this is where all their arguments are from. They don't understand the first coming and the second coming. They don't realize that God has a son, that he is a plural person, single deity. Look at verse 71. And they said, well, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his mouth. He just claimed to be the Messiah and the son of God. We got him. We got him. Jesus standing before the most educated Jews in the world experts in the law who have the scriptures and all the events that happened in the years leading up to and including his birth and his three-year public ministry and they can't see it god has for his good purposes allowed satan to put his children into positions of power and so we see it here just as we see it in churches denominations, seminaries. You know, it is so almost universally the case. There's been a, there's in the history 
of like the world, there is only a few cases that I know of where, where an organization was going bad and actually was brought back to some sort of conservative place. And uh, one of those is the Southern Baptist Convention, who, of course, Al Mohler kind of jerked back into place. I think he went into uh, their main seminary there, um, Southern Seminary, and he fired, I think, 90 of 93 professors when he came and got some people who actually believed what they were supposed to believe. He interviewed each of them. And this is the kind of thing that has to happen. If, if, if you see somebody going astray and they're in leadership, they must be dealt with swiftly. Because if not, they just dig in like a tick and you can't get them out. And then they get a little, a little group around them and that group then sides with them. And pretty soon there's this big battle and a split goes on and people get hurt. And of course they're grasping for power and buildings and position. And the godly people say, hey, take it. We've got the Lord. So gain comfort knowing that even Jesus, the perfect and holy son of God, had to constantly take a stand on the truth and he suffered for it. You're going to have to do the same thing. You're going to have to take a stand against man-made religion. I mean, sometimes when people start talking about things, you have to just stop and say, is this an optional thing or is this like scriptural? Do we need to do this or not? Is this something we should bend for or not? Is this something I should like get excited about or not and so he took a stand against the truth he was mocked he was slandered he was falsely accused but he never responded in anger never responded in violence but held the truth and suffered because of it and why did he do all this why is jesus going through all of this for you for you for all of us this is part of his suffering for us secondly jesus is falsely accused before Pilate for you. Look at chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. The whole body of the Sanhedrin is bringing Jesus before Pilate. Now, in order to do this, they have to leave the Jewish council chambers and go publicly to where Pilate is in the Praetorium, the Roman kind of courthouse. And this is going to attract a lot of attention. You can't take the whole Jewish council taking a prisoner from point A to point B through the Jerusalem and not attract attention when there's 3 million people packed into the city. I mean, they're going to get some major press now, and they know it. People are going to go, whoa, what, what has gone on that the whole Sanhedrin would gather on this festival day? That guy must have done something really bad. Isn't that the Jesus guy we saw in the temple earlier in the week? Yeah, let's go look. So surely there was a huge gawker jam that begins to follow them as they go to Pilate. John 18, verse 28 through 32, tell us they led Jesus to the praetorium. And if you look at Luke 23, 2, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying he himself is Christ a king. Notice there's three accusations here. The Jews first say Jesus is misleading the Jewish nation. Okay. Pilate's thinking, so why would they bring that? Well, the implied thing is, is he's, 
he's trying to move the Jewish nation to rebel against Rome, to not live in peace with Rome. He's an insurrectionist. He's an insurrectionist. Surely he's an insurrectionist. They're hoping Pilate fills in the gaps for himself in the most negative way. Second, they accuse Jesus of telling people they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, which of course is a bold-faced lie. Um, remember, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God earlier in the week in the Temple Mount. So they just lie. They're, they're bringing this against him because they think, you know, if Rome discovers that somebody's stealing revenue from them, they're just going to dispatch that person and just execute him in a heartbeat. Third, they accuse Jesus of claiming to be the Messiah, a king. And again, though Pilate wouldn't care who the Jewish Messiah is, He does care, and Rome did care, about false messiahs who led revolts against Rome. So all three of these things are very specifically chosen to try and get Pilate to act in really a condemnation against Jesus and have him executed. But listen, Pilate was not ignorant. Pilate was no fool. And he's sitting there thinking, so, so you've come before me now because you're concerned that the Jews should calmly submit to Rome. And you're concerned that Jews pay their taxes. And you're concerned that Caesar's throne is threatened. Give me a break. Pilate knew that every one of those Jewish leaders despised Rome, hated paying taxes, and did everything they could not to pay taxes. And that they were in favor of some of the previous revolts. And so he's thinking to himself, okay, I don't know what's going on with this Jesus guy, but he's not. He can't be. I mean, he's no threat. I mean, I am the Roman governor. I haven't heard any insurrection from any of Jesus' followers, and surely I would have heard it since I'm kind of at the top of the information food chain when it comes to stuff like that. So look at verse 3. So Pilate asked him, saying, So are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. Jesus flat out admits it. He says, Listen, yeah, I'm the son of David, the king of the Jews. That's right. Now, John 18, verses 36 to 38, gives us more detail. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I've been born. For this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is the truth hears my voice. Now, imagine what's going on through Pilate's mind. Okay, we got to get here. He's a king, but he's not a king of this world, this realm. So what? What do I care that he's not a king of this realm? He's no threat to Rome. As a matter of fact, he seems a little deranged. What does it mean to be a king of a different realm? And so he sees through the hypocrisy and baseless accusations of the Jewish leaders. However, he also knows that these Jewish leaders are the Jewish leaders. And if he makes them mad, there may be a riot that would start out. And if a riot starts out on Passover with that many Jews in Jerusalem, there would be a huge bloodbath and that wouldn't look good on his resume before higher Roman officials. 
Look at verse 4. So when Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, well, I find no guilt in this man. Now, you need to know that John chapter 18, verse 38 says that the Jewish leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, did not go into the courtroom, the praetorium, where Pilate was trying Jesus. Why? Because they didn't want to get unclean. So they're all outside with whatever multitude has gathered seeing them take Jesus as a prisoner to Pilate. So Pilate then comes out of the courtroom and he announces to all the Sanhedrin and all those present that Jesus is not guilty. Now when the Jews hear this, they're kind of excited. Because when he says, I find no guilt in this man, the Jews are like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, wait, wait. It's taken a whole lot of conniving and money to get Jesus to this place to get him tried. And now you're saying, and they see that possibly their prey is going to be let loose. And this begins to worry them exceeding. Look at verse 5. And they kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Now, the word insisting, as the NASB has it, means they were emphatically insisting or fiercely arguing. They thought that Jesus might be set free. And they might not ever get another chance again to condemn him to death. So they became ferocious in their accusations. They stepped up their language from misleading the nation to a stronger word, stirring up the people, which was even used of earthquakes. This Jesus guy is shaking the whole country from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so... Pilate now is between a rock and a hard spot. He's like, what do I do? Obviously, the guy hasn't done anything to offend Rome. He seems innocent to me. And yet I need to please the Jews. And yet I can't condemn this guy to death. And all of a sudden, ding, idea. Verse 6. So when Pilate heard it, that Jesus was stirring up people from Galilee to Jerusalem, he asked whether that man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Ha! He's got an idea. Herod, being a self-proclaimed Jew, is now in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. And since Jesus is a Galilean, and Herod's over that area... And Herod and I have been kind of enemies for a while. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to show deference to him and acknowledge his authority over Galilee. And I'm going to send this prisoner to Herod and get rid of him. And it's going to be wonderful. Then whatever happens, it'll be Herod's fault, not my fault. That's what he's thinking. Now, who is this Herod guy? Well, in 4 BC, Herod the Great died, and he appointed one of his sons, Herod Antipas, to be Tetrarch of Galilee. And Herod Antipas, of course, had a brother, Herod Philip. And while visiting Herod Philip, had an affair with Herod Philip's wife, Herodias. So Herod Antipas and Herodias ran away, eloped, and got married. He married his brother's wife. 
Herod then was confronted by John the Baptist about his adulterous relationship. We know this from Luke chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Instead of repenting, Antipas locked John up in prison. But strangely, Herod was kind of scared of John. He knew John was speaking the truth. And what's interesting, the scriptures say that Herod would actually go and listen to John. He liked listening to John. Now, if Herod, for any reason he wanted to, could just kill John, I mean, he was, you know, he had power to do that. But he didn't do it, and he kept going to listen to him. So it may be that John was getting through to Herod. And Herodias, Herod Antipas's wife, knew that this was happening. That's why during the feast, she then connived with her daughter to force Herod to keep his word And bring John the Baptist's head to the feast on a platter. And so Herod was kind of manipulated by his vengeful wife, Herodias, into taking off John's head. This is the Herod that we're talking about in the text. So Pilate knew Herod was in town. Jesus is now before Herod. And Herod is probably feeling a little bit flattered that Pilate would defer to him as the ruler of Galilee. But imagine being Jesus at this point. You've been tried already four times. Once by Annas, once by Caiaphas, once by the Sanhedrin with Caiaphas, once by Pilate. And now you're going for what? Quintuple quintuple jeopardy. You're being tried for the same crime for the fifth time in one day. It's like we'll keep trying him until we get somebody to accuse him. And believer, you may find yourself in the future in a similar situation, or maybe you're in that situation now, or maybe you have suffered that in the past. Because of your faith, because you want to do what's right, you have lost your family. You have lost your job. You have lost your friends. You have lost a promotion that you thought was sure to be given to you. You may have been accused falsely and your reputation marred, your character uh, maligned by people who don't like you because you're a Christian or because you stand up for the truth or because you won't lie. I mean, I've talked to people who were fired because they wouldn't lie for their boss. Well, welcome to Christianity. And that's what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you want to be godly? You will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. To one degree or another, the more godly you are, the more you can expect persecution. Earlier on, just the night before, as they were going from the upper room, as they were going to the garden, Jesus talked to them about the things in John 15 and John 16. And he said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then later in John 16 too, he said, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That's what it means to be a follower, like a, like Sheep among wolves, Jesus said in John 10, the whole chapter, or not John 10, Matthew 10, the whole chapter is worth reading, but we're just going to, just a couple verses. Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. And if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul or Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his household? That's any true believer. 
So you can expect, you know, it's just good to know that you should expect persecution, expect trial, expect opposition, expect slander, expect to be robbed, to forsake pleasure, to be passed over, to be treated illy because of your faith in Christ. I mean, that's one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are men, uh, or blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner evil of evil against you on account of me. Because they did it to the prophets before. And they did it to Jesus. And they do it to all of his followers. If you look in your life and you don't see any persecution, any opposition, anything coming against you, you're probably not making a very strong statement for Christ in the world. Because if the world leaves you alone and you fit in, something's broken. So expect it to come. It came to Christ and it will come to all of his followers. Herod Antipas was a wicked man and now he is sent before this man. And this wasn't fun for Jesus and it wasn't easy. But it was part of God's plan. You know, we speak of Jesus' suffering. Sometimes we think of his suffering and we just kind of, I don't know about you, kind of get a mental picture of him hanging on the cross. And there he is, nailed to the cross. And his life is slowly pining away and blood is dripping from his hands and feet and thorns in his brow and he's suffering. Well, that's part of the suffering and, of course, a great deal of suffering. But it also included everything else Jesus suffered, including these trials. Jesus right now, we're seeing, is suffering. He's been beaten and mocked and spit upon and now tried five times. Why? For you, for me. He is bearing the punishment that we deserve. This is part of the whole package of God letting Jesus suffer as our substitute on the cross. Third, Jesus is falsely accused before Herod for you. Look at verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. We know this from Luke chapter 9, verse 9, that he was trying to see Jesus. He was thrilled. And so this is one of the reasons that Herod and Pilate kind of get together at Jesus' trial because it's like, oh, I finally get to see Jesus. Thank you for sending him. I heard he can do some cool tricks. I want him to do some magic for me. Some signs, you know, bring in some sick people. Can you heal, heal that guy? Cool. I mean, he wants Jesus for entertainment purposes. Concerning Herod, J.C. Ryle notes, let us learn from Herod's case to pity great men. With all their greatness and apparent splendor, they often are thoroughly miserable within. Silks and satins and official robes often cover hearts which are utter strangers to peace, end quote. You know, this is a good lesson to learn from Herod and pretty much everybody on the front covers of all the magazines you see. Rich, famous, popular, with lots of stuff, and miserable, hollow, empty within. And you know what's interesting is all these people who don't have what they have all want to have what they have and yet they don't realize if they had what they had, they had, they'd be miserable too. Now, how many people, by gaining a lot of wealth, become more godly, more content, more at peace? Zero. 
And yet that's what the world wants. And that's shame, shamefully what a lot of Christians want. They, 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 they just are told by the world that that is the thing that is going to make them happy. But it's not going to make them happy. There are very few people who can deal with that kind of fame and power and wealth and yet not be corrupted by it. And so we learn from Herod that even though you have a place of power and position and authority, you can be totally blind to the fact that right now the wrath of God is biting on you, that you are headed from hell. And the only person who can save you from your sin and its consequences is the beat up guy in front of you. He's totally oblivious to that. He's missing it. And you need to learn here also just from the whole Jewish leaders who are bringing these accusations before Herod. Now think about this with me. It just kind of struck me. Earlier, they wouldn't go into the praetorium because it was a Gentile building. Think about that. Now they're able to go into Herod's turf because he's a Jew. But think about that. Think about their diligence and precision in obeying the man-made regulation, don't go into a Gentile court. And yet, they've plotted, schemed, paid a guy to betray somebody in secret, beaten him, slapped him around, spit on an innocent man, and they've tried him and pushed for his sentence to death. They've lied, they've deceived, they've done all manner of wickedness to an innocent man. But they're concerned about not going in there and getting defiled. That is a lesson to learn. There is so easy in churches where people go, well, we've always done it this way. You know, and you know, you can see the, the, the blood about ready to burst their arteries. I was there when they did that 80 years ago. Well, we've got to keep that. You know, it's like, it's okay. It's, it's, okay. it's just a little thing. It's just an option. We don't have to, oh yeah. And pretty soon, man, they're ready to die right now. I'm going to die defending this tradition. No, that's not what we die for. We die for wanting to be holy, to to obey the word, to be biblical. That's what we want to die for, not maintaining our preferences and our little, uh, you know, our likes and our dislikes and our certain style of music and the things that we enjoy in the order of service. And I wish they did that. And I wish you had this hymnal and whatever. Those things are not things to die for. You can be very worked up about your man-made traditions and religions and totally disregard the word of God. And that's what's happening here. Learn that lesson from the wicked men here. Look at verse 9. And when he questioned him, Jesus, at some length, he answered him nothing. So Herod's questioning Jesus and he's saying, you know, what about this? What about this? You know, do a midget. Can you do this? Can you, do, you know, is that Jesus quiet? Why? Jesus knows that Herod used to listen to John the Baptist and John the Baptist told him the truth and Herod didn't repent. And so Jesus isn't going to give him a single word. Jesus is defying Herod in his own palace with his whole entourage around him and all of his armed guards and he refuses to comply to Herod. Think about that. I mean, if Herod had a spine, he would have said, Crucify him. But he was scared. He's, I think he's kind of scared of Jesus like he was scared of John the Baptist. Look at verse 10. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. 
vehemently. What's interesting here is we know, we know from Mark chapter 6, verse 10, that Herod had heard the truth from John. We know that he's hearing all these accusations, but he's not acting. And so the, the Jewish leaders who are now there see that, oh no, maybe he's going to declare him to be innocent too. And so now it says they begin to accuse him vehemently. They've, Luke is very interesting in how he, he has an escalation in language. First, they said he's misleading the nation. Then he said he's stirring up the people. Now, he says, they're vehemently accusing him. This word means to be bold and impudent and insisting that Jesus be found guilty and executed. They're frothing at the mouth now. They're just like, you, you've got to condemn him. They're, they're freaking out. They're losing their place. They've got the mob mentality now. And Herod sees this. And he's going, probably at this point, oh, so that's why Pilate sent him over. Man, I don't want to deal with this one. These guys are hot to get this guy killed. Well, what could he have done? And that brings us to the fact that Jesus suffered all of this. The soldiers are mocking him. Herod is mocking him. They're ridiculing him, but Jesus won't say a word. He's just taking it all for you and for me. He's suffering for us in our place. And fourth and finally, Jesus is mocked and treated with contempt for you. Look at verse 11 and Herod with his soldiers. Stop there. Herod being a high ranking dignitary and has his own bodyguard. They're all laying into him. Look at verse 11, treating him with contempt, mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and his soldiers, after making fun, Jesus is not responding. Well, this is boring. And Herod goes, you know, I can see how hot the Jews are. I'll tell you what, here, put my robe on him. And then send him back. The king of the Jews. Let's make a joke out of him. He could see this was a no-win situation. So he now then defers to Pilate. Which I'm sure in a way kind of was honoring to Pilate. But imagine there's already a big multitude outside. Now the trial. More people are gathering. And now the whole Sanhedrin leaves Herod's place. And goes back to the praetorium. Through this jam pack. All 70 of the elders with a beat up guy. Dressed in the robe of a king. And Matthew and Mark, one says it was purple, another said it was scarlet. So it's this bright, gorgeous, flashy, purple, scarlet robe of a king. And the beat up guys wearing it. And you can know that the multitudes are like, hey, let's go find out what's going. This is unique. I read an article one time that said, you know what? When Jesus was tried, there was only a few people present. There was just a few mean Jews, but all the, there wasn't a whole bunch of people there. There wasn't a multitude. There wasn't a crowd. Nothing could be further from the truth. There was a ton of people there. Jerusalem was gridlocked. And now Jesus has been paraded around. Now he's being paraded around a robe. Look at verse 12. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for they had been enemies with each other. Pilate was surely amused to see Jesus now in a kingly robe and a bit flattered that Herod sent him back. Well, what is he going to do to him? He already declared him to be innocent and Herod didn't think he could condemn him. So he sent him back and now he's got this guy dressed up as a mock king in front of him. So 
Jesus is interrogated before the Sanhedrin for you. Jesus falsely accused before Pilate for you. Jesus falsely accused before Herod for you. Jesus is mocked and treated with contempt for you. And it's not over. Lord willing, we'll look at more next week. But if you don't know Christ, if you've never repented of your sins and believed on Jesus as your Savior, you need to do that. He has suffered all of this so that you could go to heaven through faith in him. So you could receive the free gift of eternal life. And if you have never done that, do it today. And if you know Jesus, this should just make you fall in love with him. And when the little persecutions come and the trials come in your life because of your faith, remember what Jesus went through, even up to this point. Tried five times before the early morning hours. Thank him. Praise him. Live for him. Let's pray. Father, we are glad that we have such a privilege of coming before you to look at your word. To see what it says about Jesus and his suffering for us. Father, we know that a lot of times even a good man would not dare to suffer even for a friend, but that Christ demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. Father, help us to remember his sacrifice. Help us to see your love for us in the trial and persecution and death of Christ. Help us to fall in love with you, to be willing to suffer for you. Father, to learn from Pilate and Herod That fame and money and position is nothing that will make a person content. It's only Christ. Christ makes both rich and poor content, happy and blessed. So, Father, may we accept whatever your will has for our lives. But in that, may we also walk before you in holiness and live in such a way that people may may be able to see our good works And give glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.